the exclusive stories behind music that helped shape and change pop culture. With award-winning broadcaster and best-selling author Jesse Dillon and co-host, award-winning music and media producer Spencer Proffer, you are inside the music. This is Jesse Dillon, your coast-to-coast and worldwide today, dialed into Inside the Music with my special co-host Spencer Proffer and an American music manager best known for working with Kiss, Bon Jovi, Motley Crue, Doc McGee, the legend, the man himself. Doc, how are you? Fantastic. I, I think I'm a legend in my own mind. That's about it. Go ahead. Now, if memory serves me correctly, correctly, you'll be somewhere in Florida on a sandy beach in a gold sequined loincloth, <laughs> walking around with the French Canadians uh, in in speedos. <laughs> uh, no, kind of missed all that. And besides that, I think all the Canadians had to go home by the end of March to get out to get back into Canada. So. I think the Canadian contingency here in Florida is gone. But you know what I'm talking about, don't you, when I say that? French Canadians and Speedos. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah, that, exactly. And I mean this in the nicest kind of way. No, 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 no. <laughs> don't do that. If, if, Randy <laughs> no, Jackson, if Randy Jackson were here, I could hear him saying to those people on the beach in Speedos, yeah, it's going to be a no for me, dog. <laughs> Yeah, oh, yeah, for, for Randy, for sure. Uh, Spencer, Doc apparently has a social conscience, which we'll be talking about today. We'll be talking about some of the amazing acts he's worked with, Hootie and the Blowfish. We'll talk about the reality series for VH1 Supergroup. We can go deep with Ted Nugent and Jason Bonham, Paul Stanley. Uh, just an incredible array of things that you've done in your life, Doc. Yeah, well, you know, when you're, you know, Around this log, I guess, uh, you get an opportunity to work with some really good people. Jesse, I'll just make one note before you get into it, which is I've known Doc way back to his Motley Crue days when I met him when Tommy Lee liked the drum sound in my old studio, and he made his album there, and Doc and I have been pals, actually business partners, for about an eight-year period. And, uh, yeah, he is not only one of the smartest, best managers out there, but there is a side to him that's really deep and human and really on point with what's going on in the world today in terms of his sensibility. So somewhere along the way, when you dive in to it, Jesse, you might turn that leaf over on Doc just for about 30 seconds and he can go out and get a tan on the beach in Florida. <laughs> well, Doc, let's just for fun of go back a little bit into your yeah. career and talk about how you first got in the music business and maybe doc, what was your first, you know, success? Well, you know, it's really crazy because I, I, I was a musician and I had a band in high school, like most people did in this, in the sixties. And once the Beatles came out in 64, it changed my life and pretty much a lot of my friends. I was very much into sports, but when the Beatles came out, I just kind of picked up a guitar at 14 and started playing. And, you know, you had those, uh, you know, played around the circuits and stuff in Chicago as a very young age. Had a, had a singles deal on Mercury Records when I was like 17 for the band, uh, even though nothing came of it. And then, uh, you know, I was a lead guitar player who couldn't sing. So if you can't sing and you're a fucking lead guitar player, there's not a lot to do okay, by yourself, mm-hmm. except, except noodle. 
So anyways, I went to the army. I got out, um, went back to school, said that's enough. Uh, it was so cold at Western Illinois University. I, I went down to Florida, uh, met a girl, became a lums waiter. She was a lums waitress. We were the Lynette's kind of thing. And um, and I waited tables and then played session guitars somewhat in a studio. And, and then I kind of, that's how it kind of started with music, but not, I wasn't really in the music business. And then my sister was dating this guy uh, named Bob Sterling, who was had a company called A. Sterling Gold. And he was doing two movies at the time, Goodbye Norma Jean, The Story of Marilyn Monroe. And he was doing Winter Kills with John Houston Jeffridge, just Anthony Perkins, all those. So those two, and he loved music. And so he kind of, and I think he loved my sister more than music. And probably that's why he kind of hung out with me. Anyways, he started me working on his music stuff. So that's really how I started. Well, okay, you have with <clears throat> you have something in common with him. You have something in common with Spencer Proffer, only Spencer's still waiting tables. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know something? We're all waiting tables. That's what we do for a living. So I, um so that's basically how I got started and he wanted to uh he and he had this guy Regis who wrote Spinning Wheel and some things and a bunch of different uh, acts. And I was helping him with that and put together this band called Night Flight. And he supported that, which was a big hit with Sandy Tirano and and uh, Howard Johnson that was on A&M. And we had Phyllis Hyman, the Brecker Brothers, David Sanborn, uh, all those players before anybody knew who they were. Henry Stewart and Steve Ferrone of the Average White Band. And uh, so that was really my entree. And we had a hit with a song called If You Wanted uh, on Areola Records. And that kind of just started me in the management business. I didn't even know what management was or did I, I didn't care what it was. It was just getting stuff done at the time. I guess that's what management was. And then um, at any rate, it just moved on to where I started working with Melanie down there with Peter Shakarik and her, her husband. And um, then to Rick Stevens from, from uh, who owned the record plant, not oh, years later, but he was the head of Polidor A&R. And so, and I became friends with him quickly. He came in with me and we ended up signing James Brown and Isaac Hayes and Mink DeVille and Bernie Worrell and all kinds of crazy shit. And um, so that got us through the kind of those 70s, you know, mm-hmm. and uh, and then, of course, the rest is history. So, yeah. Uh, spinning wheel as in David. So basically, I, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I kind of, uh, you know, fell, I just kind of fell into it, you know. Doc, spinning wheel as in David Clayton Thomas, Blood, Sweat and Tears. Yes. Supposedly he wrote the song, but got screwed out of it or something. I don't know. There was some, he was a very talented kind of Bob Dylan-ish kind of writer. And uh, he's, a, he's a, a really, really interesting cat. He's dead now. And, um, and Bob just always, 
always liked him and always likes music. And so he put a lot of uh, effort into him and me and money. So it was all good stuff. What was the ride like with Motley Crue? And were you living the same lifestyle? Well, you know, something it's, it's like, yeah, I think, uh, you know, I think like people, you know, attract each other. So I was probably as crazy as them. And, um, at the, probably not in certain ways, but, uh, it was, you know, it's kind of like I, I was, I always grew up to understand and it's kind of a cliche now, but it's uh, that, you know, if it's worth doing, it's worth overdoing. Okay. And that's always been one of my mottos. So Motley just loved the concept of that. And, uh, and I think that's kind of what attracted them. Um, and, you know, we signed the deal like within a few days of new year's evil. Uh, and, um, and against pretty much everything in the music business at that time, um, had a lot of success with it. And so, um, but as crazy as they were, uh, you know, it, you know, it was, you know, where, where I was as well, to a certain extent, I wasn't married at the time. I had to move to Orange County because I knew if I lived up with Nikki and, and Tom and them, I'd probably either be dead or certainly wouldn't be with my girlfriend at the time. Uh, so I moved out to Orange County where nobody went and had somewhat of a, uh, of a normal existence uh, without being out, you know, all night and everything else with the crew. So it was, uh, it was an interesting time for sure. Let's just say for sake of arguing, just have a little fun here. Let's say, Doc, that you and Spencer and I, whether we do or not, are sitting in someone's backyard at two in the morning drinking brandy. Maybe someone's had a cigar or two. And Doc looks at Spencer and Jesse and says, guys, I got a Motley Crue story that I've never told anybody. But I'm going to tell you guys because we're all blasted and it's two in the morning. Do we have that story available today? Yeah, the whole thing is, is there's, there's probably hundreds of them. That's, <laughs> I mean, that is the truth. I mean, where you read the dirt or you watch the movie or you read the book of the heroin diaries or whatever, it's, it's a sketch of what they did. I mean, there's, there's from, you know, biting Eddie Van Halen at dinners and, and at a, at a dinner in Sweden, uh, and, and a full on fist fights with ACDC and, and Van Halen to burning a hotel down in Switzerland <laughs> with a flare gun. <laughs> to, That's a good one. Let's, to, uh, wait, let's do that one. Oh yeah. That's, do that's the flare gun story. Good. Okay. All right. So we're playing in Winterthur, Switzerland. And we get to it, and now you have to remember, this is 1984. So in mm-hmm. 1984, we weren't allowed in any hotel in the United States because they all knew that these guys were crazy and would trash hotels. So they wouldn't allow us, and we could put it under different names, but everybody knew what it was. 
we ended up having to put $15,000 cash deposits in on Howard Johnson's in order to stay there. Okay. Because of the shittiest hotels we could find so we could stay in a hotel. But now we're in Switzerland where ACDC and Van Halen on the Monsters tour. And we check into this fairly nice hotel, you know, old, old Swiss hotel and went to tour um, Switzerland. So anyways, we check in and the guy takes us up to our rooms and stuff. And anyways, the guys want to go out. So we walked on these cobblestones, walk into a town and we see a Swiss army knife store. So they go in and of course they're buying knives and all kinds of shit as they normally do. <laughs> And stuff, you know, everything they could buy that's destructive, probably. And we go back to the hotel. So about eight o'clock at night, you know, I'm just laid in my room. Tommy and and uh, uh, Vince are next door to me, and Nick and and because they all had to share rooms, even when they headlined, because they just fuck up the rooms, and why fuck up four rooms? So we just do two, and they were fine with that. So at any rate, I'm laying there on the bed, and all of a sudden I hear this <laughs> and a flash out the window, and I, what the fuck was that? And all of a sudden, bang on the door, opening up, and there's Tommy and Vince. They go, dude, you won't fucking believe this. And they have this little gun that's about probably only three inches, you know, wide. Okay, it's a little gun, very small. It looks like a toy revolver. <laughs> And what it is, it's a flare gun for hikers that you can carry, and it shoots a, a flare 150 feet in the air. So they're in the hotel room, and they pop this thing, and a fire shoots out and bounces off the walls. They run out of the room, shut the door, come to my room, and they tell me about it. We run over there, and their door's locked. So I got to go down to the to the desk to get the key. So I run down to the desk. I said, wait in my room. So I go down to the desk. I go, listen, uh, uh, have you got the key for this room? Says, oh, well, so we'll get to, I said, no, just give me the key. I can do it. Well, at that time, this is 1984, they have a ring, like a four foot ring around this guy's neck with about a thousand keys on it. So I'm trying to pull the ring off the guy's neck, which he won't give me. But anyways, so we head up, we get in the elevator. We go up to the floor. As we get off, you can see about six inches of smoke oh, man. coming down the, the ceiling, right? So the guy said, nice. so, monsieur, are you uh, having fun? Oh, yeah, we're having a fucking blast. So we get to the door. I try to get the key off his neck. He ends up taking it out. He opens the door. The smoke comes out. Fire comes out. It burn a hole through the bed. Oh, so they bounced off the wall and then burned through the bed, started the bed on fire. So now all the sprinklers go off on the floor and we're sitting there in the pouring rain. So obviously we got thrown out of the hotel. The police came. It was, it was a nightmare, but that's just like a, the everyday occurrence with these guys. How did you Almost not get, every day. How, how did you not get arrested? Well, you know, you end up talking, because I used to carry a Prudential Life Insurance card, a plastic one, mm -hmm. and I would say, I'd go, oh, no, 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 here, see Prudential? I'd throw the card, i go, that's our insurance card. 
that they swiped the insurance card because they didn't have swipers or readers mm-hmm. back then. Okay. So they just kind of grab it and write down the numbers on my on my prudential life insurance card. And, and then obviously we'd get bills through the travel agent and stuff afterwards, but we'd get us out of town. Wow. Smart. You know, they did this. Oh, so I mean, it was just every day. It was I mean, pretty much every single day. If you're on the bus, Ozzy Hoppy from Germany gave the Motley Crue guy 38 starter pistols. So they weren't real bullets, but there were 38s that just fired like blanks. So now they've got shoulder holsters. They've got these black guns. And we had this uh, bus driver called Turnaround Ted. And the reason why he was called Turnaround Ted is he could drive from London to Moscow nonstop because he did so much crank. Okay. <laughs> so which, which the crew loved because they were gacked all the time. So, so at any rate, so they would, we'd go through these little villages in Germany and France and stuff. And, you know, it'd be like eight o'clock in the morning and Ted would go like four miles an hour and there'd be a woman like riding her bicycle who just got her groceries. <laughs> and Vince would be all gacked up and be in the, in the doorway and they'd pull up next to her. They'd open the door. Vince would pull out two guns and go, die, bitch. Boom, 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 and shoot at her. <laughs> of course, it was blank. God. And she'd think she was shot and crash her bike and everybody would laugh. Good this Lord. For, this went on for months all over Europe <laughs> in hotels. It's insane. Oh, man. So, so you were with the crew from 82 till 89. That must have been like dog years for you. Yeah. So instead of aging seven years over that time, you must have aged like 35 or yeah. something. Well, yeah. I mean, it was just, it was very intense because we never stopped. Um, the first, you know, in anybody's career, okay, I'm writing a book and I have a a section called before the zeros when it was fun. Okay. And that's when really music was fun. Mm -hmm. It's, it's, it's when people wrote songs because they felt something and they just wrote a song. They did, weren't trying to write a hit. They weren't trying to do, they were writing from the heart, writing from, they had no money. They had, they were riding in a van with seven people sleeping on people's floors, uh, friends that they would meet along the way. Somebody fucked the dog, but wouldn't tell them who it was. Shit like that. It was just a lot of fun. And, uh, then all of a sudden they become hits and they have all this money and they become geniuses and idiots and everything else. So anyways, this was the fun. This was before the zeros. So Motley was a lot of fun. They, they didn't, they weren't trying to be a, you know, this sinister evil rock band or something. They were actually funny and did practical jokes on everybody and really just had a really fucking crazy time. And, you know, they, you know, like I said, if it's worth doing, it's worth overdoing. So there was no dimmer switch for Motley Crue. No matter what we did, it was fucking pull on. So, and it was exciting and it was fun. And, 
and it it influenced kids around the world when there wasn't any uh, you know there wasn't any internet you know there was three magazines there was MTV had just come out uh so it was all new to to everybody and so it's it's a really exciting time and for music for me it was aggressive it was uh you know it was uh it was a lot of it was it was very aggressive and it was just a lot of fun and you know they weren't trying to preach to people and we were coming out of this buffalo springfield era of you know uh kind of the intellectual teaching people about you know s- social awareness and stuff and and the crew was just about having fun and partying and well, and and you know enjoying life girls just want to have fun doc let's play a song from the crew which one is your favorite i mean <laughs> i well i my favorite is actually live wire I, I I love Livewire. Let's do it. Doc McGee, my guest today, with my co-host Spencer Proffer. Uh, when we come back, you mentioned idiots a minute ago. Let's talk about Guns and Roses in a few minutes. Doc, work for you? <laughs> that works for me. <laughs> All right, here's the crew deep inside the music.
Inside the Music is a unique content series that reveals the never-before-told stories behind some of the most iconic artists in pop culture. Award-winning personality and best-selling author Jesse Dillon and renowned music and media producer Spencer Proffer get you up close and personal with industry legends from the world of music, movies, television, theatre and live events. It's better. 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 Inside.